1: What's going on, everyone? You are listening to Lit Pulpit. Uh, it is a joy to get this podcast going. My name is Claude Acho, and I'm a pastor and author, and I'm here with my friend, fellow pastor and author, Austin Carty. How are you, Austin?
0: I'm great, Claude. How you doing today?
1: Man, doing well. Um, you know, we've talked about it's that part of January where uh, winter is... You know, winter's upon us, so there's a little bit of that winter blues, but, you know, we're both here. We're we're still here. We're grateful and grateful to be together with you and the community of people that are listening as we jump into James Baldwin's debut novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Um, this is a, a classic. This is one of the best novels of the 20th century uh, and a really interesting and important text to think about from the perspective of reading literature for our formation and growth and uh, discipleship as Christians. So this this is a real key text, and I'm, I'm really excited to jump into it with you and with all those who are listening.
0: I'm equally excited, and having a conversation about a good book like this is the kind of thing that can hopefully jar us out of those January blues and uh, get us feeling a little bit more enlivened and uh, excited about tackling a new year.
1: That's right. So we can let y'all know a little bit of how this is going to work. If you listen to our uh, trailer episode, you got a feel for why this book—a little bit of a feel for us. We'll rehash that, um, you know, briefly. But we have an opportunity for y'all that are listening to sort of read along with us. And certainly, you can listen to the podcast and get a ton out of it. I think just straight up. But if you really want to delve in, uh, really kind of be connected with us and be on this journey alongside of us and others check in the show notes and join our Facebook group you can post questions we'll be interacting there more and more as we kind of get uh, further into the book but you can read along with us and we can take this journey into this really important work by Baldwin together so I want to plug that at the top for folks to know and uh, let's let's start the, let's start here Austin let's start with kind of why this book matters briefly and then we can sort of Put this novel through uh, my little um, test that I like to give to novels, and I think it's a test that you like to give as well. But maybe first, um, can you share a little bit on why this, why this is a significant novel and why it's worth us looking at this text?
0: Well, as we were talking about earlier, not only is it, in our opinions, one of the best novels of the 20th century, it's been ranked as, I think you had cited, the 39th best novel of the 20th century. Um, and it's an important novel because uh, it captures so much uh, important, um, uh, it, it's, it, it captures so importantly uh, things about systemic racism, things about uh, the psychological effects of, of religion on human persons. Uh, there's so much about um, interpersonal dynamics that we can learn from it. And speaking particularly as pastors who are thinking carefully through how literature can be used in service of the church, this book set within the church and narrating the experience of a son of the church as he comes up in and experiences um, life as uh, a Christian who is at church constantly, this gives us a really great opportunity uh, to look at how fiction, set within the context of the church, can help us as individual Christians uh, better grapple with and understand our own faith and what it means to be uh, people of the church.
1: That's really helpful because this is really a church book this this is a church novel (laughs) this is uh i I mean it's 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 so embedded the language is so uh rich in biblical illusion uh this is a sort of story that somebody could only tell about a church experience from deep within it you could only write this if you have uh sat in the pew for uh, a long time and that's what baldwin has done uh for some background this uh novel as, as Austin, as you mentioned, is, you know, widely acclaimed. Time Magazine had it in its top 100, you know, best English novels of uh, 20th century, uh, modern library as well. And this is, um, you know, semi-autobiographical for, for Baldwin, who grew up in the Pentecostal uh, Holiness Storefront Church in New York City, and uh, kind of tells his story and, um, you know, took about 10 years working on this novel and uh, and got it out into the world, and it's had a, a tremendous impact in it. And it's a, it's a really, um, I think, important book, uh, timely book for us to think about uh, as we think about church and formation as Christians even now. And you mentioned, uh, Austin, that that lens of sort of the psychological impact of uh, of religion. Um, I think that's the angle that we'll go at first as we kind of just lay some groundwork for thinking about this book as folks are listening and beginning to read along. But before we turn to that, one of the things that I love to do with a novel is to read the first sentence. And I know, you, I know this is your jam too. Um, when you think about... Uh, what is shown to us in that first step right a writer is flexing their first muscles they're showing us what they got right and this is this is that first impression of a first sentence and obviously there's a lot of novels that we know that have great first sentences um i think of something simple uh of a, of a book that i love that that came out right around this time uh, ralph ellison's invisible man his first sentence is i am an invisible man um simple but uh it, it it's to the point. Um, Austin, can are there first sentence uh, first sentences of novels that that stick out to you? I got a couple others, but I, I'm cheating because I've got my little list pulled up.
0: <laughs> well, the most obvious one, of course, is uh, is Melville's "Call Me Ishmael," um, yes. and it's 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 so obvious and 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 so. Um, widely quoted as, as to be a frivolous answer to the question. Uh, but no, I love to do this just as much as I love to also talk about favorite last sentences. Uh, mm-hmm. Both of those things are so meaningful to me. Um, and uh, in terms of favorite last sentences, which I tend to uh, appreciate even more than, 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 than first sentences, because to me they are so important for kind of encapsulating everything that has gone before it. Uh, and for me, it's, it's a, it's a toss-up between uh, Fitzgerald's Gatsby and uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch. And I think I have to side with Middlemarch, uh, where uh, she says her effect on others was incalculably diffusive, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might otherwise have been, is in part owing to uh, those who lived uh, simple lives, hidden lives and rest unvisited, uh, in hidden tombs. Uh, I, I paraphrase there at the very end, but it's, it's, it's a beautiful novel about, uh, just the power of, of simple lives to make big effects in the world. But yeah, like you, I, I love, uh, first sentences, last sentences, uh, and, and this one here and go tell it on the mountain, um, really lets us know that we're in the hands of a deft writer and it portends so much for what we're going to get in the rest of the book.
1: Look at you bringing us your favorite first sentence, lengthy, just fresh off the top of the dome like that. Well, I
0: didn't I didn't nail, I didn't I didn't I didn't stick the landing. So uh, those who are listening, you know, the, eight, the novel. The my, yeah, my, my apologies for all the uh, Elliott fans out there and the Middlemarch fans who, who knew that one and realized where I stumbled. But it was it was close enough.
1: Well, Baldwin's novel is really interesting. So as 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 we're thinking about this, there's a lot of framing that's happening in the novel from its structure um, and not just the first sentence. So even before we get to the first sentence, we get part one, uh, the seventh day, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Um this is really uh, this is this is setting the table, right? we know we're entering we're entering church, right? We're we're being drawn into the scriptures, and this invitational piece, right? Come, come, the water of life, come freely, right? That that's a rich image in scripture um, all over. We can think of you know Jesus and John four. We we can think all over the place, and and it does begin to raise the question of, um, is there really is there life? Is there really water offered? um, in what we're about to see unfold in this story. Um, and it, and it raises questions about, um, the environments that the characters are going to be in are, is, is there truly water and life there? Uh, or are they, uh, places of desert judgment and chaff? Um, if we want to take some of the language from Psalm one. And so we're already getting this framing and then we get into the first sentence. Austin, do you want to do the uh, privileges of reading this first sentence for us?
0: I, I will. And then just to kind of tie together what we were just saying about, uh, an opening and, and closing, uh, when we get to the end of this book, when we get to the final sentences, uh, it really serves to answer that question that you just asked about whether there really is water, uh, mm-hmm. whether there really is sustenance and nourishment in this, because I do think it's important to say up front that, um, a first reading or a cursory reading of this book, a more cynical reading of this book could only find this as being a cynical book or or a pessimistic or negative book and could say, no, there's there's not. Uh, But I think a closer reading, um, one that is more attuned with uh, what Baldwin's saying about his own experience with the church through the character of John here, uh, you realize that despite a lot of the traumas and terrors that church and religion put him through that even looking back uh, there was stuff that was rich and profound and meaningful uh, and life giving. Uh, So I I think that's a helpful way to to talk about here at the beginning um, that it's already pointing to where we're going to go there at the end. Um, And here's what, here's what Baldwin says to start this book. Everyone had always said that John would be a preacher when he grew up just like his father. It had been said so often that John, without ever thinking about it, had come to believe it himself. Not until the morning of his 14th birthday did he really begin to think about it, and by then it was already too late.
1: Mm. So we got the first sentence and really the first few in that first paragraph, but they but they hold together, right? Um there's something there in that first sentence, right? Um Everyone had always said that John would be a preacher. One of the things that I'd encourage people as they're reading through is to look. Uh, pay attention to in the first, in these first kind of 57 pages, this first f- sort of section of the book is how, what people say about other people, because what we're immediately introduced to with John is that there's been a word spoken over him. And uh, this word has been spoken over him, which is something that happens to everybody. Um, and hopefully we we can think, um, we can think of words spoken over in blessing, right? In benediction. Uh, but John, who has a life that as we See in the first, uh, in the second paragraph, rather, he has a life that's rooted in the church, and yet the things spoken over him uh, do not do not uh, direct toward life, but seem to direct toward toward death. And we're introduced to that right away, and that I think brings us to this first theme that I think is really fascinating to talk about is sort of the the psychological effect of of church and religion that John um, encounters and that we encounter simply in the first sentences of the novel.
0: I think that's so well put, Claude, because we can't get off and running with this book without talking about the power that we as human beings have to name one another, both either for good or for ill. Those words that we speak over one another, particularly um, adults and parents over children, uh, these are things that we as human beings when we're young, and of course it still happens to us when we're adults too, but... We take these things in and they have a way of assigning us an identity that we take in almost unconsciously and we don't realize the extent to which it's setting expectations before us that we can feel frustrated when we're not living up to or we can rebel against. Uh, But these are things that, that are often spoken over us. And as folks who come up in the church, this is not an uncommon story at all, that there are expectations placed on children of who they are going to be as people of faith as they grow older. And what we oftentimes will see is how this can be very, very burdensome for folks when they don't feel their own life and faith experience seeming to align with the expectations that those uh that they love or that they respect or who are the authority figures in their lives have told them they are ultimately supposed to be conforming to.
1: Mhm. Yeah, and one of the things that's interesting about this first paragraph is John is hearing what's spoken over him. Everyone said he would be a preacher when he grew up, and not just that's that's not an isolation but that's in reference to his father, right? It says, just like his father, uh, uh, Gabriel, who, who we meet in these early pages as well. And obviously there's a, there's a lot of depth to that relationship, uh, and some, some kind of twists and turns that we'll, we'll deal with as we kind of press further into the book in future episodes. But we, we get that right away, right? We, we get, we get the hint of this and then it's, it's, um, Baldwin says, it had been said so often that John, without ever thinking about it, had come to believe it himself. This second sentence captures a lot of what can happen in religious experience um, in ways that are unhealthy, in ways that, that, are, that are not good. Uh, so it's not just that a word is spoken over him, but it's spoken over him with such a frequency and, uh, as we'll see, with such an intensity that he can't disentangle himself. From, from this message and, and notice too that that what's spoken over him is not uh you know a word of grace it's not the message of the gospel it's not you know you're part of god's family you know it's it's actually something that is close to the realm of the church but is also like it's a working term it's a preacher preachers work right this this is like uh any any preacher will tell you that if uh, he he or uh he or she's identity is that they are a preacher then they are not in a good place uh, and yet this is the title that that he has that's been given to him and and, and I think that'll you know, illuminate some of the religious context that he's in. This particular flavor of a uh, fundamentalist Pentecostal holiness stream, but but notice that John can't differentiate between what's been said and who he is until his birthday, and until right until it's too late. Right. This is this is a pretty <laughs> this is a pretty ominous first paragraph that we're that we're getting that this moment of epiphany is coming far too late, and it's almost like a car crash uh, that cannot that, that it it can't be it can't be averted, right? Um, The collision is going to happen. And you get the sense that, um, you know, you get the sense that John is trapped, uh, that he's trapped in these words, he's trapped in this um, identity that's placed on him. How how do you, um, how how do you see, what, what do you, what do you see happening further with John's sort of sense of self, how he's relating to both kind of church world and also what's hinted at here, some elements of family.
0: There's a few pages later, he picks up this same refrain where he's talking about, he, Baldwin, is talking about John, and he's talking about John's experience of the saints around him in church and watching them as they're wrapped up uh, in kind of spiritual ecstasy. And it says... He did not feel it himself, the joy they felt, Yet he could not doubt that it was for them the very bread of life, could not doubt it, that is, until it was too late to doubt. Mm. So here again, we have that same language of being caught between something that he doesn't yet feel himself, but has been placed upon him as almost a yoke that he intends uh, uh, to ultimately cast off. I think that it's important to say that for Baldwin, as the the author of the book, this, until it was too late to doubt, says something about the way that this was therefore in his bones because of the way he spent this early part of his life, not only immersed in the culture, but trying, in essence, to will himself into being this person that he thought he was supposed to be. I don't think that it's then uh, unrelated that this book is so uh, just um, immersed in biblical illusion and also the cadence Mm -hmm. and the way that he writes Uh, it's because it wasn't until it was too late that he could doubt whether that was supposed to be him or whether that was his identity. He wasn't just somebody who attended church. He was deeply immersed in it. Uh, So I think, I think that's important. Um, just as I think that it's important to, to clarify that it's not that this naming or these blessings or the, the idea that he was going to be a preacher was placed before him as an a, a possibility, as an opportunity. It was placed over him as an expectation and almost in a finished and determined uh, sense to where mm-hmm. he felt like there wasn't any choice in the matter, which... Also caused uh, a great deal of existential anguish, as we'll see, uh, going through the book. But here, it, it necessarily creates uh, a sense of distance between and tension between father and son, because hmm. we already see that there is a hope that the father has for the son, a a feeling that the son has of not wanting not wanting to follow in the footsteps of the father, we will quickly come to realize that it's not just that he doesn't want to disappoint his father. It's that he hates his father. There is a deep resentment. And he even talks about the one reason that he will not come to faith, walk the aisle, profess yeah. a belief in Christ, is because he wants to cherish his hatred of his father. Yeah. And that to come to Christ, he has to go through his father. It says, yeah. and he he resists that, and so this gets us into further this dynamic between John and Gabriel. Uh, that's that's so much more than the spiritual expectations that John has on him, but it's certainly not less than that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and it's interesting as well when we think about the context for, for John and for the characters and for this novel, right? So we're in, um, you know, we're in the thirties, right? We're in, we're in twenties and thirties America. We're in a really, um, a particularly um, intense um, racialized dynamic. And so what that leads, what that leads us to discover is that this role of preacher uh, to Declare that over somebody is is to to declare an an uplifting right to declare a place of uh, of autonomy of significance in the community, contrary to um, what the other forces of society would would put a a, a young black uh, child teenager into, and so the the gap again between some intention and impact uh, is really significant here. Um, and we'll see that kind of worked out, uh, not just through John's story, but also through Gabriel's story, right? We'll, we'll see that in, in the chapters in the chapters to come. Um, you know, and, and I think maybe one of the ways we can kind of sum up some of what we've been discussing is psychologically, John is sort of um, uh, trapped uh, in the church, uh, entrapped in his family between, entrapped in a way, in, in ways in which the thing that is sustenance and life for everyone else, the faith for him, he can see that it's going to be suffocation, right? He can see that this is this thing that's supposed to be, um, you know, the bread of life is, uh, is, is maybe not going to sustain him, but is going to, uh, trap him, choke him, um, you know, remove any sense of self that he, that he struggled to, to achieve it, to maintain. Um, and I think for that, for that reason, uh, this, this is obviously a really, really compelling. And I think this maps on um, quite well to contemporary conversations on deconstruction, uh, all, all sorts of different things that I think are just, you know, right there at the surface. We don't have to spell out for people to to begin to parse through. But I think the novel presents that sort of angle of church experience. And then at the same time is asking the question of us as readers to consider if this is um, an anomaly uh, is this a flaw in Christianity as it is in its essence, or is this, is this actually showing us um, a critique of a corrupt form of the faith while, while also upholding the possibility that the faith itself um, can remedy uh, these ills that are presented uh, in John's life and in the church and um, in, the, in the context that Baldwin is writing from? So I think those are some of the bigger questions, right? That that readers have to wrestle with, and I think there is a way in which people read Baldwin uh, in his later writings, *Fire Next Time*, um, *Notes of a Native Son*, and based on his comments there, they reread this novel and they automatically, as you mentioned at the top, read it in a more cynical, in a cynical light, in a critical light, uh, in the sense that the criticism has no room for uh, a healthy faith. Um but I but I you know as you, as one could guess, you know, I think we both see it a little different than that. But these are the questions that are there uh, right at the beginning. So I, I hope uh, folks if if this is um piquing some of your interest, you've listened this far into uh, into the conversation, I hope that you'll join us on uh on our Facebook group. Um let us know if y'all got some uh favorite first lines of novels, let us know uh what you think of this conversation, maybe some things on the psychological impact of of, uh, of, of John's experience in these first few pages, maybe some things that you've noticed that we've missed, and then as we get into uh, episode two, um, we're going to be pushing uh, pushing further into the novel. We're going to begin to look at some of the other characters that we meet in these in this first section, um, and characters like Gabriel, Roy, Elizabeth, and some of the folks in the church. And so, be thinking about those. If you have questions, drop them on Facebook, and we'd love to hear from hear from y'all in that way. Uh, Austin, any any last words, parting words?
0: No, just other than this was a great first conversation. I can't wait to take up the second one. And I'm really excited to engage with all of those who are listening and following along. And uh, this is going to be great fun to do together.
1: Absolutely. We'll appreciate everyone for listening and we'll catch y'all uh, in a little bit.